For now, we're in 1 Peter 4, 7 to 11. And it says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded, for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one has received a gift. Use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for the Holy Spirit to help us as we work through this passage. Holy Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it speaks today as clearly as it spoke back then. And may, Lord, it bear fruit in our lives. Lord, we pray for a humble mind, uh, a unity of mind, that as we come to try and understand what was going on for these Christians back so many years ago, that we could take the charge as well to know that things are still happening the same way and that we are still called to obedience. So Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you will bring about that we come to a greater understanding of this passage, that your grace would abound to us uh, where we fail and fall short, that we would go home and into our week encouraged to be obedient to your word. And Lord, we pray that in all things, your name will be exalted. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 46 verse 10 says, Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand. I will will accomplish all of my purpose. What do we do when everything is falling down all around us? When churches turn to another gospel, not that there is another gospel, or if children can no longer be children and parents are no longer allowed to parent, where gender is fluid and sex is a toy for self-gain, when babies are no longer human but just a bunch of cells, what do we do when our world is falling down around us? What do we do if we're in Ukraine at the moment, Afghanistan or Russia? What do we do when our world is falling down around us? We remember and act according to what God said in the beginning. This verse told us that from ancient times, things not yet done, My counsel shall stand, I will accomplish all my purpose. He says that from the beginning, he knew the end. From the beginning, he told us the end. From the beginning, God declared what would take place, and this is how we are to act even when the world is falling down around us. So, what did God say in the beginning? Well, Genesis 1, he creates man and he says, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God created an image bearer for himself. That is to say, he created a mirror for himself or a glory bearer. And this glory bearer was to go and have dominion over the threefold story of creation. Uh, Three stories of creation, as if it was a a three-story building. The sum of creation is the earth, the sea, and the heavens, and all that is in them. This is the three-story building of creation. When we see this phrase, we see it often referred to God's dominion and power, that God has authority over the heavens, the, the earth, and the sea, and all that is in them. So God's beginning declaring the end from the beginning was that His image, His glory, would have dominion over all of creation. Now, if we think about how our passage for this week ends in 1 Peter 3.11, it says to Him, uh, 1 Peter 4.11, to Him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is a repeated phrase throughout the New Testament that God will gain all glory and have all dominion forever and ever. Amen. And this is what was said in the beginning that God created at the center of creation His image bearers, mankind, to go forth and have dominion over all things. And now we are seeing that this will be accomplished. It will be accomplished Sin did not derail it or change it off course or or remove it from happening. It will happen. So what do we do when our world is falling down around us? Where the world as we know it no longer exists? What do we do? Well, Peter will charge us that through small, ordinary, ordinary steps of obedience, God's purpose of His glory having dominion over all things, will be accomplished. That through His image bearers, who are obedient to His Word, will see that God's glory will have dominion over all things, and what He declared in the beginning will be so. This is where Peter starts in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. When we read this, we must leave a little confused. You cannot just read that and go, I'm cool with it. Because it wasn't written last week. This was written 2,000 years ago, uh, and it's still going on. Life is still moving forward. So what do we do with a statement that says, the end of all things is at hand? Well, Peter is going to use this to encourage and to spur on these suffering saints to uh, endure in the midst of slow change, to not be stubborn like the Israelites, to not be hard-hearted like the Israelites, but to actually change and progress in holiness even when life as we know it is falling apart. But Peter's not the only one to speak like this. The New Testament is full of phrases like, the end is near, this will take place in this generation, this will soon take place. Uh, 
uh, and, and many other different phrases that imply that something is happening around the corner. Now we're going to get a whole lot of different views as to who we speak to about what this means. Some will say, well to God a thousand years is like a day and a day is like a thousand years, which is what the Psalms say. It's a beautiful way of describing God as being who, a, a, a being who is outside of creation. He is a spiritual being who is outside of creation. God holds time in his hands. But God also understands that the people he created are in time. God created them with a time limit on them. Well, actually, he created us without a time limit on us. And then because of sin, we have now a time limit on us. We know that in Genesis 6, it said their years will be 120 and no more. So say we have a hundred years and we're hearing the end of all things is at hand, a human being who is created in time is going to think, well that's going to happen in my lifetime. I think it's worthwhile to consider that God who created, who although is outside of time, created us in time, understands that he is speaking to people in time. Also, Peter is very aware that anyone who makes a false, pro, uh, a false pro- prophetic word is going to either be discredited or stoned. Deuteronomy 18, 21, 22. And if you say in your heart, how are we to know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a pr- prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. And there's other passages to go on and speak about the discipline of a false prophet. Peter was a man who would have been very aware of Deuteronomy 18 and not take lightly teaching a false uh, message. So when we come to think about what he is saying We have to take a bit of a survey of the whole scriptures to see and understand what this means to us today. One of the things I'd point out is that God knows that we are in time. He never is trying to deliberately confuse us or conceal things from us. Genesis 15, 16, uh, we see that Abraham is actually told with clarity that he will not inherit the uh, promised land, but his offspring will. In fact, it won't be his immediate offspring. It says, And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Uh, when, When God speaks to Abraham, he speaks knowing that Abraham is a man who is limited with time and is uh, making a promise to him that is going to come in the future time. If we need a better example of what these scriptures could be doing here, We need to hold uh, Daniel and Revelation in comparison. These are both prophetic books. In Daniel 12, 4, it says, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and grow, and knowledge shall increase. Notice that Daniel is told to shut up and seal up the words of the prophecy in Daniel 12, 4. But in Revelation 22.10, it says this, And he said to me, 
Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Daniel was told to shut up the words of the prophecy because there was still at least, maybe more, 500 years until what was being spoken of was going to happen. If Revelation is talking about the end of the world, and if Peter is talking about the end of the world, their words are actually false. Because here, Revelation tells us, do not seal up these words of the prophecy because this book for the time is near. It realize, we, we, we must be looking at something else that is going to happen. To the, to the New Testament writers, something else that is like the end is going to happen a lot quicker than the end of the world is going to happen. One commentator, Gary uh, Damar, says this, If Peter had meant that the physical earth would be literally destroyed in the near future, he was simply wrong. Some people would take another view of this verse and say that at hand does not mean in the near future. If that is the case, there is little meaning in Peter's words at all. Peter deliberately put a time indicator in his prophecy. Peter meant that all things, all the things of the old covenant, would pass away in the destruction of Jerusalem. This is the event that most of the New Testament, when it speaks of the end of of the world, is speaking towards. We see this uh, so clearly in the way uh, that Jesus speaks in Matthew 24 or Luke 13 or, uh, sorry, Mark 13 and Luke 21. We see this in the picture of Daniel being told to seal up because there's still 500 years until this prophecy comes, where Revelation is told to do not seal up because there's only probably four years until the prophecy is going to be revealed. When Peter is writing, he's writing in roughly probably 66 AD. And if you know your history, 66 AD was the start of the Romans turning against the Jews. And for the next four years, uh, city or town by town is going to be decimated. And I mean decimated. In Jotapotta in 67, 40,000 Jews were killed. 1,200 women and infants were taken into slavery while only one Roman soldier was killed. That is one town. That is not even the city of Jerusalem. If we are going to look at something that felt like the end of all things, according to Peter and his audience, we are not looking to the end of the world. We are looking to AD 70. If we don't understand the weight of AD 70, we will misunderstand much of the scriptures in the New Testament. AD 70 was a big deal. The exile of the Jews into Babylon was a big deal, well, AD 70 was times that by 100. Uh, when, when we see the temple destroyed and Israel not given a new land, uh, Israel displaced, it was a sign that the covenant was not for them, but for the church through Jesus. The holy of holies was no longer the holy of holies. God's dwelling place among man, the temple, was no longer the dwelling place, but the church became the dwelling place of God. This was the final end of the old covenant and the introduction to the new covenant in its full fullness forevermore. So when we're looking at this phrase, Peter's audience, the end of all things is at hand, We still have to deal with the end of all things, right? Because that sounds like an all-inclusive statement. 
Well, much like it says in Matthew 24 that the sun will be dark and the moon will, the moon will uh, turn red and the, the stars will fall from the sky, this was a phrase that would talk about de, uh, the de, decreation of a nation, taking away their power. Their light and their power source is going to be dropped. It's also quoted in Isaiah 13 and Isaiah 31, uh, speaking of Assyria and Babylon and Egypt later also in in Isaiah. So we see these apocalyptic phrases that are actually talking about the end of a nation. And the end of a nation was their end of favor that God had over them, which for Israel was AD 70. When the temple was destroyed, not a stone left upon another stone, as Jesus said. The dwelling place of God was no longer in a building built with human hands, but in God's people. For this church, or for these seven or so churches that were reading this letter, life as they knew it was going to end. If they were a Jewish Christian, a Jew that had become a Christian, everything was going to be different for them now. How do we live? How do we live now if the world is not as we know it anymore? How does a Christian who's become, who was, was a Jew live when the world has turned upside down and they don't understand what is going on? Many would be displaced, many would lose family members, many would be homeless, wandering from place to place, looking for a safe refuge. Where would their refuge be? The church. The church in Antioch, the church in Galatia, the Gert church in Ephesus. There was nothing left for people in Jerusalem. And those that converted to Christianity heeded the words of Matthew 24 or Mark 13 or Luke 21 and they listened and they fled the city and they survived. But if they did not flee the city, they were destroyed because everything was destroyed in Jerusalem in AD 70. So the only refuge that a Christian Jew or or any Christian of that time could have was the church of Jesus Christ, his people scattered throughout the world. And where's Peter writing? Throughout the world. He's writing to many churches, about seven churches in Asia Minor, and he is spreading this message. In AD 66, the next four years are going to be like the end. This is what you should do. Therefore, be sober-minded, self-controlled, sorry, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The church and the importance of the church in any given time, particularly in times of chaos, cannot be uh, overestimated, underestimated. We, We need to be people who keep our head and not run off thoughtlessly trying to save the world. How will we save the world? Through simple, mundane steps of obedience. Uh, A quote from a pastor said this, Listen, church, we are prone to believe that what God is after is a a huge act of obviously glorious obedience. But what God actually intends for 99% of Christian life is is, is what looks small, humble, joyful acts of obedience to our duties over over the long haul of life. We always want to be the David or the Daniel or the Moses, but that's set for Jesus. He's the one who fulfills those roles. We are the crowd. We are Israel. We are the people who have to act on every decision in life through humble, joyful, uh, faithful steps of obedience in the small things. And this starts with two very clear things, 
self-controlled and sober-minded. Uh, both of which Peter has already touched on before. Uh, sober-minded, we talked about before and said that sober-minded is actually sober in spirit. Uh, that means we're not just staying away from drugs and alcohol or, or, or using alcohol responsibly and, and definitely staying away from drugs. It, it's actually saying that our gospel is uh, sober. It has clarity behind it. We aren't uh, like the Galatians falling into a false gospel. Of course, self-controlled is about having temperance and, uh, and using the worldly enjoyments in a way that is glorifying to God. I want to draw our attention to 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27, which is Peter's teaching of a self-controlled life. Uh, sorry, Paul's. Do, not, do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wealth, uh, reef. But we, an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly or do not beat as one beating the air. I discipline my body and keep it under control lest I, after preaching to others, am disqualified. What Peter is saying is that the church needs to grasp that self-control looks far more like training for the Olympics than watching it. Or since the World Cup's on at the moment, it looks more like training for the World Cup soccer than sitting there watching it. What I mean by that is, if you're sitting there, you probably have a bowl of corn chips and uh, a bottle of Coke while you sit and drink and watch people do an active sport. In the Christian faith, that's not you. You aren't watching. You're working. You're the one who is disciplining their body like an athlete. Because where And the crown of righteousness does not perish, but is eternal. So as an athlete beats their body and restricts their body, so we should spiritually. I like the phrase, a self-ruled body. Ruled has this weight of, what does your body submit to? Do you submit to your desires, your thoughts, your feelings, which we all know the scripture declares are wayward with sin? Or do you cause your body to submit to King Jesus through constant reminder of the word and reminder of the gospel, of course? So we see that the first two things that we ought to have when the world is going to chaos, when the world as we know it is ending, so to speak, is to be self-controlled and sober-minded. To have a good, clear head on our shoulders that's making wise decisions, fueled by prayer, and a body that is under our control and submitting to Christ and His Word. Notice it says, for the sake of your prayers. In being that unrepentant sin will hinder you from prayer. If you aren't self-controlled, you will not pray. If you aren't a disciplined person, you will go from day to day as often as you do uh, prayerless. And if your mind is not sober, clear, focused on the true gospel, not a gospel you've fashioned, your prayers will, of course, be unhelpful and hindered. So the first thing we should come to in our prayers is confession. 
confess where we have not been self-controlled, confess where our gospel has been tainted and veiled, uh, where we have uh, been led to be that, that Peter wants a church that stays together. Peter has now said multiple times, put on brotherly love. Love one another uh, earnestly. This is probably the third or at least maybe the fourth time where Peter has called the church to love one another. It seems like there will be a problem in churches where we will struggle to love one another. And if you have been a part of church for any length of time, you will know that love is not something that comes naturally. Now the weight of the word here is earnestly. To be fervent, sincere, strong and lasting. This is what should mark the church. We've said before that Jesus himself said, by the way you love one another, they will know that you are mine. By the way the church cares inwardly and loves inwardly, the world will know that we belong to him. But of course, if we are not a self-controlled, sober-minded person, our controls, our, our, our emotions and feelings control us and we are unable to direct ourselves to love. We'll often say things like, but my feelings have been hurt. Well, just because your feelings have been hurt doesn't mean you're right. Our feelings are actually tainted by sin and need to be brought into control and called to submit to God. Even if your feelings are hurt, you are still called to love one another earnestly. The thing with a world that's coming to an end as we know it is that there's chaos all around us. There's chaos in our world. There's chaos in each of our lives. And when there's chaos in our life, we are pushed to a point where sin is going to be revealed. And when sin is going to be revealed, the most loving thing we can do is correct one another, encourage one another with all teaching and patience. It is never loving to ignore sin in each other's life. It is never loving to pretend that sin did not happen. It is always loving to correct one another, encourage one another with all teaching and patience, which is 2 Timothy 4. So when our lives are in chaos, because life as we know it is coming to an end, we ought to love one another because love covers a multitude of sins, which is likely a reference from Paul's writings in Romans 13, 8, where he says, owe one another, uh, owe no one anything except to love each other. For one who loves another has fulfilled the law. He states this to say that what we always owe each other is to love. Even when we're still waiting for a brother or sister to confess their sin, we are to love them. Even when we're in unforgiveness or haven't been forgiven, we are to love them still. Because love fulfills the law. And he goes on to state some of the law. Now if we just simply put it this way, if you love someone, you will not, uh, you will not steal from them. If you love someone, you will not commit adultery, is what Paul says. That is what it means for love to fulfill the law. And for love to cover a multitude of sins is that through love, we will see forgiveness sought, correction accomplished, and encouragement laid forth. 
and anything outside of this, the idea that love is flattery, the idea that love is ignoring sin or not correcting, that is not love according to the Scriptures. Love is truth in the Scriptures. Truth that comes through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. A correction of sin that reminds us of the forgiveness we have in Jesus Christ, which is what we ought to do. And one way of loving is to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Why was this so important? Because the Jerusalem church just lost its home. And those in Jotapata, they just lost everything. There's Christians, Jewish Christians spread abroad all over the place. There's Jews probably scattered all over the place, disowned, homeless, without a family. And Peter is saying, show hospitality. Not a meal. Invite them to live with you without grumbling. Invite these people into your life. We've looked before that the word hospitality comes from the word hostile because there was this, th- this tradition when you were showing hospitality and you're sitting around your campfire, you had no idea that the person coming up to your campfire, whether they were going to be hostile or not, whether they were going to be friendly or actually rob you. And to invite them to sit around your campfire was a risky business. It was potentially putting your plate, yourself into a hostile position. So we should be hospitable with our Christian homes. It is an obligation of the church to be open and willing to invite people into their lives. In verse 10, Peter turns to be more specific. As, he, as, as each of you have received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varies, varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Interestingly, after Peter has just said, show hospitality without grumbling, he has just spoken about stewardship of the house and money and food, uh, the possessions that we have. These are things that God has given to us and now he goes on to speak of the gifts we have or talents or skills that we have been giving. Uh, we have been given. It, it says here, the gifts that we have been given by God's very grace are for one another. So what you have been given is not for you, but for the church, the people of God. Not for you to lord it over other people and show how, much better, how many more skills you have than others. Not for you to show off your skills uh, for, for, for your own glory and satisfaction, but for the benefit of the church. It, 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 it confuses me when we get to gifting in 1 Corinthians 11 that we often miss that the very reason for the gifts was to equip the saints. You have been gifted. Not for you. Or your household alone, but for the household of God. That is why you have been gifted. One of the things we do when we get to gifting is we start to think about how do, we, how do you serve in the church? And it's this, this 
mentality of, are you serving in the church? And then that's summarized even smaller to, are you serving on Sunday? And we shrink down the uh, ability to use our gifts for God on a Sunday service once a week. Well, this isn't really what we do here. We have a conviction that Sunday is an opportunity for the elders to serve the body of Christ, to lead the household of God in the teaching, to lead them in prayer, to instruct us in singing and and the communion of the saints. And then every other day is for you as the body of Christ to go forth and use your gifts to serve one another. Sunday is your day where you come and rest and be built up and lay the foundation for the week that you go in and have the gifts that God's given you uh, to serve for the sake of the church, to equip the church. So this is your day to rest, to breathe, to soak in the gospel, to be reminded of God's goodness to you so that every other day you have the ability to go forth and use your gifts for the glory of God and the building up of His church. But it's very interesting that Paul uses these two examples. Speaking, as though speaking the oracles of God, and service, as the one who serves from the strength that God supplies. I'm going to argue that these aren't specific gifts. That speaking is not the gift of preaching. But rather, things that we all do and are gifted to do Yet some of our gifts lean towards a different uh, area of work to another. I also think these gifts are, are heavily connected to the thing we do as a career for our work. How does our work that we are gifted in serve the church and the advancement of our kingdom? The, the advanced, advancement of God's kingdom. What we should be considering when we go to put our hands to work is... How are we gifted? Uh, Am I even gifted in this job? Am I skilled in this job? Do I feel like I'm speaking in a way that speaks the oracles of God or serving from the strength that God provides in my workplace? Any job we have and we'll serve by the strength of God with any job we have as well. We need to connect our giftedness to our work. And I think where we've gone wrong is we have missed the understanding of God's mission. God's mission is that God's people would be everywhere. Even in a world that's not as we used to think it is. Even in a world where uh, it feels like it's no longer the same. God's mission is that He would have gifted people working in areas that they are gifted in. So that there is a community of flourishing Christians everywhere. And this is, of course, to serve the church. So we need gifted Christian doctors and nurses who serve from the strength of God and speak the oracles of God. We need Christian mothers who serve from God's strength and speak the oracles of God. We need Christian tradesmen who serve from God's strength and speak the oracles of God. We need gifted Christian restaurant workers, waitresses, owners who serve from God's strength and speak the oracles of God. We greatly need Christian lawyers who speak the oracles of God and serve from God's strength 
and so on and so forth. What we must realize is that the kingdom of God is genuinely meant to be a physical, visible society that the world wonders about, that the world questions. Yes, it's not here in its fullness. Yes, it's only a taste of the community of God, the kingdom of God here on earth. But it should be something that is concerning the world. That every time they walk into a medical practice, they seem to come along these people who speak like God speaks and who serve in a joyous way. When you go into a restaurant, people come across Christians who serve at Macca's and KFC with joy. We've got to come back and realize that the mission of God is, yes, preach the gospel, but also work hard. Her holy work, holy gifted work is pleasing to God in a world that is in chaos at times. Think of Philippians. Philippians 3.20 But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. What were the Philippians? Citizens of Rome who went to Philippi to bring about Roman culture to make Philippi Roman. Now, Paul is saying, our citizenship is not Rome, it's in heaven. But you're in Philippi. Make Philippi like heaven. And how does Jesus teach us to pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done, here on earth as it is in heaven. It's not going to be perfect. The kingdom of God will come in its fullness one day. But as Christians, we ought to think more broadly that our work is not just a matter of preaching the gospel if we get the rare opportunity for it, but that we may speak the oracles of God in ways of wisdom into people's lives. That we can set an example as better parents, uh, better fathers, that care and love our children and look forward to being around our children and our wife, rather than the common culture that it's an annoying place to be. That we would be people who honour the emperor, as people, uh, as Peter has already said before. While our workplace is bagging out our prime minister, as we love to do as Australians, we would find one thing, or many things, to honour that emperor. That is what it looks like to speak the oracles of God, in whatever context you find yourself in. To speak the oracles of God is to grab hold of the book of Proverbs, and use it in your workplace as you build friendships with the people of the world. I would love to sit and pray with each of our church, each member of our church, and to seek the scriptures of how you have been gifted and what work you are in that will serve the church and extend the kingdom of God. Because your work is more than just waiting for a single opportunity to preach the gospel. Your work is there for the building of God's kingdom. To represent a society that is glorifying to God. And that can happen even in a world that is no longer what it ought to be. A world that seemingly is falling apart. And all this... The reason I find this to be true 
that the gifted variousness of the grace and the deliberateness of speaking and serving as the ones that were spe- specified, he says then, in, in, order, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the reason I say that gifting is referring to what we do, what our work is. That we are gifted so that in everything, not just in our spiritual things we do, not just in our religious practice of attending church, going to a Bible study and doing some walk-up evangelism occasionally, they are not the only things we glorify God in. Everything. Sometimes I feel like a word has lost its meaning and everything feels like it's not enough. The whole of your life, every possession you own, every bit of income you have, every every resource at your disposal, every talent that you have that exists in your, your, your repertoire is all for the glory of God. You can use all of your life for the glory of God. Which brings us back to the start which talks about prayer and reminding us that our prayers, for the sake of our prayers, we want to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Your work is a spiritual place. Your day-to-day rhythms of life are spiritual, whatever it is you find yourself doing, not just what we coin spiritual as like prayer, singing songs, coming to church. We need to work out How do we do them for the glory of God? How do we do them for the glory of Christ? Because to Him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Because to Him, you were created to be an image bearer. To Jesus, you were created to reflect Him and to glorify Him and to make His dominion extend to the ends of the earth. We are here in Newcastle because we need the image of God to have dominion here in Newcastle. And it will. It will. God has said that His glory will fill the earth, that the nations will bow to Him. Even when it looks like the world as we know it is falling down around us. Christ said He will have dominion. And Paul in Romans 16 20 says to the church, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Genesis 3.15 says that Eve will have an offspring, Jesus, who will crush the serpent under his feet. And now Paul is saying to the church, you will soon crush Satan under your feet. We are for Christ's glory, for Christ's image, for Christ's kingdom, in all that we do. Let us not think that just our work, our church gathering, our prayer gatherings, our evangelism is for God, but all things. Your life goals, your career goals, your family, your household, your wealth, your resources. Where is the kingdom of God in it? And where is the church? Peter is charging us and challenging us to say that even when it looks like everything is coming to an end, 
God's kingdom is prevailing so that Christ will have dominion and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that from the beginning you determined the end. That your counsel and purpose will be accomplished. That your image bearers, Christ being the foremost, will crush Satan under his feet and under the feet of the church. That his dominion will be forever and ever. That his glory will extend to the end of the earth. Lord, may we grasp that it's through small steps of obedience. The step of obedience in our workplace, and in our household, and in our neighbourhood. Standing up for integrity, saying no to sin, giving wisdom to friends in our midst. May we keep going to the very end, which will only be the beginning when your kingdom comes in its fullness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.